Ernie Merrick is well known in Australian football circles. He's coached most recently at Newcastle Jets, Wellington Phoenix and Melbourne Victory in the A-League, where he had great on-field success in terms of both results and developing players. And he also had a short stint as coach of the Hong Kong national team. Prior to his A-League experiences, Ernie played at Frankston City, coached and played at Doveton, and was assistant coach at Frankston Pines in the state Premier Leagues. He moved on from the Victorian competitions to the National Soccer League and coached at Preston Lions, coach me, and Sunshine George Cross. He was then appointed as the inaugural Victorian Institute of Sport head coach, where he helped to develop players for the Australian junior national teams. These included Josh Kennedy, Scott McDonald, Matthew Spiranovich, Eugene Galekovic, Paul Giannu, Komblatsis, Danny, Danny Orsop, Lee Broxham, Adrian Leyer, Roddy and Andy Vargas, Jimmy Jago, Simon Colosimo, and Vince Grella, just to name a few. Perhaps most well remembered as the hugely successful inaugural coach at Melbourne Victory, where he helped build one of the A-League benchmark clubs from the ground up. During his time at Melbourne Victory from 2005 to 2011, Ernie won championships in 2006-2007 and 2008-2009, the Premiership in 2006-2007 and 2008-2009, and the Pre-Season Cup in 2008-2009, completing the treble. A-League Coach of the Year in 2006-2007 and again in 2009-2010. Ernie's teams have always had a focus on attacking and scoring goals, and indeed his record shows this. Please join me in sharing Ernie Merrick's football coaching life. That's going to cost you a bit to go. <laughs> all the research I had to do to get all that out is worth every penny of it. W- I, I, welcome, Ern. Thank you. I can't live up to that. I think we, <laughs> can, we, can we stop now? <laughs> While I'm ahead. <laughs> uh, Happy New Year. Same to you. And, and you're, we're recording this here in Melbourne in, in Footscray, thanks to uh, Ralph Barber, which we really, really appreciate. Let's jump into it. The, the, I think most of the time here in Australia when we hear coaches talk, it's normally in the media responding to a question from a journalist or a, a magazine piece about something that's happening in a team and a club right now. My opinion has been that really we don't get to do this. And over, over the period of around about an hour, talk to people about their coaching life and their journey. So, so that's where we want to go here. So if I can get going and hand over to you, how did you get into coaching? I think I was a reluctant coach. I am um, a PE teacher by profession, and uh, I did a little bit of extra, obviously, courses in different areas. Being a PE teacher and coming to Australia, I remember doing a course in uh, AFL football, which was fun. It was pretty tough in those days, so when it came to game time, I did made sure I didn't play. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, I played at Frankston City. And then, uh, and then at Dufton, and at Dufton, because you're the PE teacher, you usually get asked, can you do a little bit of exercise? Because in those days, coaching more revolved around a good bunch of lads and getting them fit more than anything too strategic. So when the Dufton coach, who was very good, Danny McMinimi, left, I, I got asked to take over. I knocked it back twice. The next coach didn't last very long, and then I eventually took the job and managed to survive second bottom I've got this habit of, of starting off second bottom in each competition that, and team that I take over and uh, and I found it of course very difficult but failure is uh, something you learn from so um, I only coached I think in the one year other than that I was a sort of player assistant coach with no real pr- plans to kick on until <laughs> Billy Murray um, another good coach was at Preston yeah. and uh, Billy says can you come and be an assistant and uh, Billy lasted three months 
although he, I thought he was an outstanding coach, and uh, and they asked me to take over. So you sort of fall into it, and then after a while you you begin to enjoy it. And yeah. and uh, I don't know if half the time you're doing the right thing or the wrong thing, but you learn from your mistakes. How important do you think it is to get that first opportunity as a coach? Well, I think many coaches only get that one opportunity because it's a pretty cutthroat game. In the old days in the NSL, you're lucky if you lasted the season. Most clubs had two coaches a year, maybe three. So uh, I I got an opportunity at Dufton, which I probably didn't appreciate, but it was a real learning experience. And then at Preston, um, because of probably Billy Murray's coaching more than mine, I just sort of kept the status quo and they were quite successful, we finished second top of the league. But I didn't make too many changes and when I discovered I did make changes, we went downhill a little bit. But Preston, Dufton was the first opportunity, Preston was more real coaching and, and learning at the higher levels, which is more about strategy than it is about technical work. A little bit more pressure? Oh yes, <laughs> uh, you were there at the time I was coaching you, you were the striker and uh, all of a sudden uh, Billy went, you went and several good players, Ian Dobson, Graham, and Hayes. Graham Hayes and I couldn't work it out, I thought this is very strange. <laughs> I, I'd walk in after a win into the, the bar club and I didn't put my hand in my pocket for a beer. <laughs> Uh, if I lost the game, it was completely different. <laughs> <laughs> I'd struggle to get in the door. I have to say I really enjoyed my time there. And uh, 90% of the people are terrific, but there's 10% always put you under pressure when they're not happy. Yeah. And in, and in the NSL, that you, you I think, had a little break and then went to Sunshine George Cross? Yes, I got the... That's what happens. If you have a wee bit of success, you know, you tend to get a call every now and again. I'm out of work now, so feel free to give me a call. <laughs> um, so uh, Sunshine George Cross came up, and uh, and it was a very young team. I got a lot of help from uh, Ronnie Smith, who actually got me into coaching really in the first place by doing my coaching badges through Ronnie when he was the director of coaching in Victoria. And uh, he had AIS boys that were coming out of his program. Um, this was before the VIS set up. And so we went with a very young team, but you really struggle. So we were sort of bottom of the league, but some really good players come out of it. Kevin Musket being one who played in the first team at 16. Yeah. And there was a few of them, Troy Crenny. Um, uh, Ernie Tapai was one of the more mature players, went on to play regularly for Australia with Eddie Thompson. And uh, Frank Talia, the goalkeeper, Lawrence Kintner went overseas. So I've enjoyed working with the boys that I coach and the staff and most of the boards and CEOs are really good to work with as well. Yeah. You were a um, you were balancing coaching with a full-time job as a sales rep, playground equipment, I think, at the time. Um, and then the opportunity to work at the Victorian Institute of Sport and set up the initial program there came around. Yeah, I, I, um, I was a PE teacher for 12 years and... And then uh, when I first came to Australia, I, I as I say, worked at uh, Beaumont High School and Baldwin High School and Wesley College and Yavna College. But uh, this job to earn a little bit more money came up. It was a Danish company that only employed PE teachers to sell playground equipment. So I, I, it, you get a bit more freedom when you're a sales person. You work in your own time. So yeah. I did both jobs and it, uh, it worked out quite well. But 
in the f that was 92 I started at the VIS. In 94 I became full-time at the VIS and uh, could really focus on on developing young players and spending a lot more time in the research of football, which is part of the sort of programme at the VIS. Uh, and obviously was a, a part of the development pathway of so many talented youngsters, some that didn't go on to the AS, many, many that did. How, how did that change you change your thinking as a professional coach? Well, I realised that youngsters have got a lot of energy, a lot of motivation, really keen to learn and are very capable. We had a discussion earlier with Ralph and Domi's brother. Um, if you train youngsters like adults, they finish up behaving and respectfully behaving and training and playing like adults. So I, I didn't try and change my methods. Um, Vince Grello was 13 years old. I think Simon Colosimo was 14 years old when he came in. Uh, Scott McDonald at, at 15 was, was playing for us sometimes and then playing in the NSL with Morwell Falcons. So I found that developing them as youngsters you just got so much and talent in front of you, and really, they just want to learn and do any work really hard to achieve. Yeah. What was the what was the relationship with you as a coach at the VIS and the AIS, Ronnie Smith, and and how did that grow and develop from from developing players, but but more in the in your terms of coaching and and the opportunities that that brought forward for you as a coach. Well, in the 90s and early 2000s, I think there was a really good relationship between national coaches, Eddie Thompson, Raoul Blanco, Les Scheinflug, uh the technical director, M Mike Wells, and, um, and the AIS, Ronnie Smith, and then all the state institutes. So the state institutes in each state were developing young players at 17s, 20s. They'd, they'd finish up uh, in Olympic teams generally. And then and the national coach was always interested in who was coming through. So I think the opportunity, the integration of all those programs worked really well. And that's when I think the golden, just before then and just after then, the golden generation of players came through. I don't know why that, that program changed. I think it was a Dutch technical director that <laughs> decided to change it, which happens when you bring in foreigners that, that, that perhaps don't understand the set up and what's what's in front of them yeah but uh, I thought that just gave a lot of people the opportunity to not only for players to develop but as a coach I felt I developed as well because at the VIS we had a lot more input on coach education professional development uh, sports science that type of thing yeah my name's Gary Cole you're listening to the football coaching life brought to you by football coaches Australia and making media the podcast professionals. Today's guest is Ernie Merrick. We're having a great old catch-up here with two, two old friends that go back uh, an awful long way. Ern, as a, a player, but perhaps more as a coach, who's had the most influence on you? I certainly have learned from, from every coach that I've been coached by uh, or have worked with, but uh, I think Ronnie Smith has been a big influence, um, in the, especially in those early days when you're not sure, you know, you've got a problem in midfield. At George Cross, you've got young players, the AIS players, I would phone up Ronnie and say, Ronnie, I've got this little problem. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have anyone to... to s and that, in those days, I think, I used to think, well, they're not working, so we'll bring someone else in. Since then, I've discovered you really have to develop the players yourself and improve the system that you're playing in the structure yeah. and coach more and, uh, and not overcoach. 
Um, I certainly overcoached a couple of times at, uh, early on at uh, Victory because I remember showing too many videos and Archie Thompson saying, and they were running out of popcorn. <laughs> 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 but uh, I, I think uh, coaching uh, structure and getting the best out of people and teams collectively rather than just individual things is, is the way to go. You can't always you know, sign a new player like Liverpool and Man <laughs> United for a few million. Do you, um, you obviously trained as a school teacher in, the, in Scotland uh, and came out here to Australia and, and also taught. Has that been important for you as a coach, being a teacher and having that background and understanding of how to communicate and pass the message on? Well, I think you're spot on. I think teaching um, shows you the methodology regarding uh, imparting information, whether it be through explicit or implicit means. And I won't go into the <laughs> technical <laughs> details, but you learn how to deal with people and you learn you're not actually coaching skills, you're coaching people. And uh, and I've always tried to do that from a very positive point of view and, and make coaching fun whether it be at the highest level or the lowest level. And uh, I've been asked to coach under 12 girls for a couple of nights coming up, and, uh, and it's, it's no different. And I know that the under 12 girls coach East Bentley now is going to be under a lot of pressure. <laughs> <laughs> I think perhaps one of the things you might find different is normally when you take over a senior team, you get a list of your current squad. I think at a junior club, you get a list of the current parents. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a, it's pretty hard working at lower levels with kids uh, dealing with parents because the parents are the f biggest fans of the kids and they can't do anything wrong. So at the VIS, it was always a case of, look, let me do the coaching and let me fail or, or have success. And if you're not happy, take the kids out. But um, I, I think parents mean well, but sometimes some parents try and live their lives through their, their mm. kids. And uh, it's it's not been a problem for me. Time will sell. <laughs> I did coach my son at under nine level, and he's never played football since. In uh, today, in doing some of the preparation for this conversation, um, I, I was reviewing the questions, and it was really interesting. This is a, this is obviously about coaching and Australian football coaches. And one of the questions that I didn't have in there is, what, what is coaching? What, what does that mean to you? People say you're a coach, but what is coaching? What does that mean that you do? I think you're an influencer. You're influencing the behaviours of of players, male or female, and you're an enabler. You're trying to help them put into practice how you're influencing them. So we have all coaches have a, a style that they want to play, and um, I think coaches really need to know what their game is, what it's about, and um, and in part the that sort of knowledge in a very practical way and in a way that it's it's not too theoretical but it's always action and uh, and you can only gain the ability to influence in a positive way if you have got the respect of the players and um, if they know that you've sort of been there and done that a little bit and you've got some runs on the board yourself and uh, but you can never gain respect through fear and yeah. so I've always avoided that side of things in fact fear is one of the biggest obstacles that players have to overcome to achieve high standards because they're afraid of making a lot of them are afraid of making mistakes afraid of letting people down or you know of not 
looking good on camera or whatever, fear comes into it all the time. So I, I'm very big on saying, look, errors, uh, there's no such thing as an error, just an opportunity to learn something new. And um, as Einstein said, that, uh, failure is the seed of growth and success. That's not Albert Einstein, that's <laughs> Jimmy Einstein from Glasgow. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was. <wasn't. laughs> so, so don't don't be afraid of failing. Um, uh, get involved as much as you can and learn from it. And uh, and that's my sort of methodology of coaching. Obviously, apply that applies to coaches as well as players. Absolutely, um, I've uh, I've stuffed up a lot of players. <laughs> I've had ten my first ten years of coaching. I think I started in '79. I must have ruined a lot of good players because I knew better and I wasn't prepared to listen. And then I discovered that empathy is a very important characteristic of a good coach, listening to the other side of things. Uh, Ian Sturton was one player that comes to mind. I signed him as a 19-year-old from Rangers Reserves and he could have been a fantastic player except he got me. (laughs) (laughs) I I keep in touch with him every now and again, but uh, I think that there, there couldn't possibly be a mistake that a coach makes that I haven't made in spades. It's just that I, I have, I've tried to learn from every situation and uh, fortunately I keep getting jobs so I can keep practising what I'm doing. That that making mistakes is really, really interesting. Uh, one of my opinions, thoughts, views on the game here is here in Australia we seem to have done a great job at putting people through coaching courses. We put thousands of people through coaching licences which is a bit like giving an 18 year old a li- getting them a driver's licence. Yeah. Gives them access to the road, doesn't make them a great driver. So many of us go out, we learn, we try, we fail, we try again. As a coach of course that can cost you a job. That's a very long introduction to a question here is how important do you think it is for a coach to have a mentor? Did you have one, and how did those relationships work? I think uh, we'll see more and more mentors coming into uh, elite level sport. Uh, I know that in AFL level, it's uh, becoming a big thing. A friend of mine, Neil Craig, is not only working with the Gold Coast Suns, a young up-and-coming coach, he's also working with uh, Eddie Jones who's certainly not an up-and-coming coach. He's a high-performance coach, but appreciates having Neil Craig there to bounce things off. And uh, I had uh, Ronnie Smith, and I had yourself at Victory, because sometimes coaches get a bit carried away with the moment and want to make a stupid, rash decision, which I've made many of, and every now and again you'd sit on the bench and say, are you sure you want to make that decision? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I want to make that. Are you sure? What do you think? <laughs> and uh, and I think that's crucial, and that's why the people that assist you in coaching, whether it be assistant coaches or specialist goalkeeping coaches or fitness people or yourself or operations manager, I think that relationship's got to be a very honest one. You you can't have someone that just tells you what you want to hear all the time, and and it doesn't have to be an argument. It's just usually a a nod at the right time or a shake of the head. <laughs> <laughs> I think you've done that a couple of times with me. You. <laughs> so, so I think the role of a mentor. I just, I just felt as though I should have had a mentor more often, but we c- you couldn't afford it in those days in NSL level. And uh, at the VIS, I felt as though there were so many good people I could talk to, whether it be elite level hockey coaches or rugby, or AFL, netball, cricket. You know, there was other people to talk to, and that's really what mentoring is about. Yeah. Do you think 
or how oh, it has to be we've already discussed how, how has your coaching changed over the journey well I like to think it has changed <laughs> if I was doing what I was doing at Dufton it was more physical work and uh, and the wrong type of physical work now uh, that's such a fitness training is a very special area um, my background sports science as well as phys- physical education so at least I can identify with that but I give more freedom to to the people, the specialists around me, the goalkeeping coach, um, the assistant coach. The, if you can, if you have a coach working with strikers, etc., giving them um, more opportunity to to say and do and develop players they think is the right way. But as I and the head coach, I can oversee that, and that's the way coaching has got. Be- become uh, over in all sports over the last 10-15 years um, it's about working with other people it doesn't all the information doesn't have to come from one person the head coach can't be that insecure that he doesn't want to sound like he doesn't know about a particular area now you know there's more input from more people and it's keeping everything ev- on the same page and in this going moving in the same direction so your leadership skills are just integral to being a successful coach? I think leadership skills are crucial. And good leadership doesn't mean that you're an authoritarian or any type of dictator. I think it's just uh, working with people and understanding from their point of view. Again, it comes back to empathy. You're listening to The Football Coaching Life, brought to you by Football Coaches Australia and Making Media, the podcast professionals. We're here today talking with Ernie Merrick, uh, looking at the journey of his coaching life. And how have other coaches from other sports influenced your coaching? Oh, very much so. Um, I mentioned Neil Craig earlier. Um, I've watched Eddie Jones run training sessions and the intensity of them with the Australian rugby team. Um, uh, VIS Jimmy Irvin from the VIS. Uh, he was the assistant coach to the national team. He he was just terrific to bounce things off of. I mean, there's so many people I can't I can't uh, not I can't mention everyone, but there's just so many people I've learned from. I've I've watched basketball sessions and thought, what a great fast break type of setup that is. As soon as they won the ball. You know, it was a St Kilda team in the olden days, and I thought, I, li- I think I could design a session on that and fast break. So you, you learn from other coaches and how to, to, not only relate and deal with players, but you can see uh, methods they have of imparting that type of strategic information, which is at the higher levels, from the technical stuff up to the strategic stuff. Yeah. Neil Buzzard and cricket, even you know, team invasion games are obviously similar in many ways so one team invading territory and and penetrating into an area where goals can be scored whether it's kicking them through big posts or wee posts or you know uh, a try uh, Craig Bellamy I've learned a lot from Craig we trained alongside him when I was at Victory and just looking at the intensity of his training sessions I couldn't believe how hard <laughs> the boys trained under Craig Bellamy and, and his, his approach and attitude and, and yet he knew when how to talk to players it wasn't all belly stuff <laughs> yep. it was uh, it was the variety of ways to you know some people need to 
be blasted every now and again. Others, you need to put your arm around their shoulders and say, look, maybe you should think about doing it this way or that way. But uh, you learn so much from other coaches. And and I like to think that I'll continue to learn because it's, it's never-ending stuff. Yeah. I think it's time to give the game away when you can't learn anymore, isn't it? Yeah, well, look, I, I think, think back in old sessions that I did, and I'm, I'm, it's embarrassing, but then I learned from it. So, yes, if you're not prepared to innovate, change and move forward, um, give a game away. Do something else. Get the slippers out and the dressing gown and the pipe. <laughs> Some people would say I'm ready for that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I thought I'd throw a couple of things in here that most people are not going to know. Oh, oh, here we go. You, you're, here we go. <laughs> you, you are, I've checked the records. You, you um, are one of Australia's most successful Matildas coaches because you never lost a game. <laughs> Now, tell me about your, your uh, experience as a coach of the Matildas. That was a very brief interlude in my VIS coaching career. I received a call from John Boltby, from the, who was head of programming at the AIS then, and he said, look, we are, we are, the women's program aren't run under the auspices of what was Australian Soccer Association in those days. And they, they sort of, they're often... The, branch on their own they've got no money etc we fund them so we would like to have a say in the coach and we want to put you forward as the coach what do you think so I attended a couple of sessions and interviews and I was selected to coach the Matildas but the CEO of the Matildas at that time who's since disappeared um, didn't want me to be a part of it <laughs> so I almost started coaching. It was a sort of four to five week period of maybe being the coach, announced as a coach, but not really the coach. And then, so I just went back to the VIS end of story. I would have, I would have enjoyed it, but I think it would, it would be a bit different from coaching males. Coaching females, is, it's hard to encapsulate why it'd be different, but I think it would be different, but it would have been a good challenge. Uh, I'd love to work at international level. I've done that once briefly. Yeah. in Hong Kong and I found it really interesting but Hong Kong even though I had a three year contract I knew after a one year that I can't uh, have success at this team because of the board that was around at the time so I, I think I've done that a couple of times I've walked away from a, a team or a club because if you don't feel that you've got the ingredients and the opportunity to develop a team and and you know, achieve something. There's no point in hanging around anymore. So, yeah. I walked out of Hong Kong, and I never made it with the Matildas, and I, I left Phoenix because there was a variety of issues that I've just felt. And it's nobody's fault, really. It's, it's travel, the you know, things that affect the coach, the budget, retaining players. That's the hardest thing is getting developing players, retaining them, yeah. and can building on the team, which most boards want to do, but they've got their own ideas how to do it or they don't have the finances how to yeah. do it I mean I could tell a few stories about working with different boards <laughs> but generally it's most boards are, are people are that do the job do it on a voluntary basis they usually put money into the club and they want to have a bit of a say and uh, if you don't listen to them they're not very happy yeah you you went from uh, the VIS four or five weeks as Matilda's coach back to the VIS um, which was fortuitous as well because the opportunity to be the inaugural coach at Melbourne Victory came along which is very different you most people get a coaching job this is an established team you put together a team you 
go out and play and you're going to be there for a day or a year or a month or 10 years or you know a thousand games depending on how you and that that team work but at Melbourne Victory you had an opportunity to build something from the ground up which is a an unbelievably unique experience we don't have time here to talk about everything but how important was that for you as a part of your coaching journey oh well you called me about that job <laughs> you were the operations manager I wasn't too keen because after the N- NSL I thought you know you last five minutes and before you know it you're looking for another job but um, I, I was heartened that, that the people running the club as well as the administrators yourself and uh, Darren Gosling the CEO at the time Jeff Lord was the president or chairman I, f- I felt that you people were all very stable and you would stick by the three-year contract that you'd offered me and uh, unfortunately we didn't have enough senior players and quality players because if you want to be a big team you've got to be able to spend some money on quality players you can't have youngsters in your team Sunshine George Cross were youngsters and you just survive each year but uh, when a team has really got to perform like Man United or Chelsea, Arsenal, you've really got to have the budget and some security behind you. And um, that first year, we uh, we started off pretty well. By we beat uh, in round eight, we beat Sydney five nil, and uh, <laughs> it's like here we go, <laughs> the championships in the bag in the story. <laughs> uh, but then Archie went off to PSV. We had a couple of injuries, and we just didn't have the depth, and we deteriorated and finished. With, second bottom so when Jeff Lord called me into his office the chairman I thought oh here we go again I was pretty annoyed actually and I was thinking what a waste of time this has been but all he said to me was what do you need we need to we need to bolster this team we want to be successful we're we're top of the league halfway through so the potential's there what do you need and I said just a few players. <laughs> There's a couple of guys I've got in mind: Lionel Messi, Ronaldinho, <laughs> Ronaldo. No, I, I, I said, look, we just, we need, we've got the strikers, we've got also, we've got uh, Archie Thompson, made a bit more service up front. We got Fred from Brazil. We need to strengthen the midfield, so I brought uh, Kevin Musket from fullback into defensive midfield and signed a Scotsman from Hibs called Grant Brebner. And um, and at the back we brought in Roddy Vargas. Now I, when I say I did, we did. In fact, I think you were behind most of those signings. And uh, and we went on to win the championship and the premiership. But that wouldn't have happened with a traditional older NSL soccer club. I would have been sacked after year one because you can't finish second bottom. But in the next four seasons, we finished in three grand finals. Yeah, it was r- remarkable success and um, built. Um, you know, a foundational club in the A League that's that's just still one of the most successful clubs today. So, congratulations on all that. Have a good time. Well, I think you had a major part in that. Thank you. Very generous. Um, why do you do it? Why are you a coach? Oh, it's I could say all the cliches. You know, <laughs> trying to help people fulfil their dreams. And I just love it. It's just great fun. There are times where you go, what am I doing this for? <laughs> and someone's... In season one, uh, we were in Sydney, we were getting beaten, we were on the slide down, the crowd was booing me. A little lad from Melbourne, uh, Victory, came round the back. He says, Ernie, 
and I thought he was going to give me his car. He threw it at me. <laughs> he threw it at me and says, that's the last time I come up here to watch the game or whatever. But uh, So you have your moments, but other times, you know, most of the time, it's, it's really enjoyable. It's, and it's only stressful for about 93 minutes <laughs> each week. The rest of the time, it's pretty good. And it's the environment's what you create if, if you want to. If you let that sort of stuff bother you, then... Uh, become a technical director <laughs> do something different but don't coach yeah uh, I think you and I in the in the real early days of working together at Melbourne Victory we were both because we'd been around the block once or twice we were both cognizant that at some point that's just going to come to an end we weren't sure whether it was going to be a, a season or as it turned out six or seven seasons later after building a great club and, uh, and having a great deal of success there but um, that's tough you know that 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 hurt does hurt and i don't want to get into the specifics of that at melbourne victory but perhaps reframe it and say how important is resilience for coaches oh it's crucial i think there's certain character types that shouldn't coach maybe work as assistants but when the pressure's on i think you've still got to know the direction that you're going to take you've got to work towards that and uh, just forget the detractors or those that have got their opinions, those that are phoning you up. <laughs> I had a guy that was on the text to me. He used to send me these texts, oh, Mary, you're useless, you're, going get, you're finished, uh, Tim Sheringham's taking over next week and it's been negotiated. And this was, and the guy didn't realise his phone number was coming through, but I just ignored him. I, but eventually I thought I've had enough, so I changed my, I changed my phone number and I sent a note out to all my friends and the note just said, look, uh, I've changed my number. If you want to get in touch with me, I'm happy to chat with you. Just, this is my new number. And I accidentally sent it to this <laughs> bloke. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I thought, oh, I've done it again. Anyway, the guy who f sent me through a text, he says, I love your work, good call. I'll never bother you again. And he never did. <laughs> so I thought I'd made a biggest, the biggest boo-boo, but he thought I was going, go on, give me more. <laughs> so, uh, but it's, it, resilience is key to it, but you, you can't take it home to the family. You've got to be back at home. You've got to have downtime and switch off. And I think uh, you get better at that over time. Yeah. But initially it's very tough. Grant Brebner's lost his first job, uh, first game, sorry. Uh, and. He's a good coach and he'll do well and he'll learn from his mistakes. But this is a time for people to support him and he's got to realise that this is part of the, the journey. And I think uh, Victor will be in the finals and, and uh, they've only played one game, they've had no preparation, he's got, had to play a lot of youngsters. So that sort of defines where he's going to go, you know. In the first few games it's all going to be tough. There's always a percentage, even though it's a small percentage of the crowd, crowd think you're doing the wrong thing or boo, boo you. But he, he's he's an up-and-coming coach. He's a, he knows the victory way. He's got Steve Keem alongside him, who's a very good coach. I actually did my badge with him. And pro licence. My pro licence with him in, in Scotland. And uh, two years later, there was another guy who turned out to be a pretty good coach as well. He did it in Scotland as well. His name's Mourinho. <laughs> Mourinho. <laughs> so I'm going to tell everyone I did the same coaching course as Mourinho. Uh, I love it. What have been some of your most enjoyable moments as a coach? Some of the best players you worked with? 
oh, there's just been too many good players to mention them all. Even, you know, the, the little ones in the background that just do a job for you, like two centre-backs are Adrian, Adrian Lear and Roddy Vargas. They're just always there and do a job. Lee Broxham, always, yeah. he started off as a kit man. Absolutely. Uh, he, regarding enjoyable times, sometimes, you know, you, you're perceived to have a failure year, but you've actually done really well. Um, at Newcastle, I thought we did really well. We put together a team that finished bottom of the league and went into a grand final against victory. And somebody switched the VAR off at the wrong time. But uh, next time I'll check the VAR as part of my preparation. <laughs> next grand final I'm in. But there's no doubt the 6 0 win at um, uh, victory against Adelaide in 2007. 2007. That was the most exciting time. It was great. And the crowd were. We sold out the stadium in two hours, 55,800, I think. It's still a record. Archie Thompson, one of the best players I've ever worked with. He was just brilliant. Kevin Musket ran the midfield. As we've talked about, Adrian and uh, Roddy never gave anything away. It was just Fred was supplying the ball. Brebner had a thigh injury, but he played on. So, you know, Pantelidis, he, you know, he's one of these uh, unheralded heroes that does his job in the background and uh, doesn't get the limelight but um, when it comes back to Archie was one of the most exciting players if not the most exciting player I've ever coached he's a great player great person and and it's really really interesting because the uh, Archie's a lot of people might have trouble coaching Archie would that be a fair well I had a lot of trouble coaching Archie in the first year I remember uh, being at uh, we were using Melbourne Grammar School's training facilities before the Westgate Ridge. I started the first session and I was working on defending from the front and Archie didn't agree with that. <laughs> so in the second session I'm going, where's Archie gone? <laughs> and the boys are waving to someone driving a car <laughs> over the Westgate Ridge. He had his gear on and that was it. he drove home and all the boys are waving to him and he's going, see you later, I'm, not, I'm out of here. So Archie was a handful. And uh, and in his book, he admits that he was a handful in the first year. But when he came back, he went to PSV in preparation for the German um, World Cup, World I think Cup, it was. Yeah. And when he came back, it was terrific. He understood, you know, that he had done the wrong thing, perhaps. But not, it wasn't all that bad. It was yeah. just he just he changed he changed his nature and character on the field. Everything changed, and uh, he was great to work with. I didn't do a lot of coaching with Archie though. Usually at the start of the game, I'd go, "We're going that way to be in with Archie," because when you were in this way towards our boys, <laughs> they get a bit scared. <laughs> and and that that I think is a gift, having had the pleasure of working with you and, and watching you coach over the journey. I think taking the elements, these eleven individual elements on on a particular match day, and making them work within that framework to achieve the things, and you know Archie those things that I think or certainly I as a coach I couldn't teach him how to do no. uh, never been able to do them myself you just go wow how does he where does that come from and providing him that environment to be able to express that and work with 10 other people to, to do the sorts of things that Archie did to excite crowds is a, is a great credit to you and, and your coaching craft well I think you realise you, you're not going to teach every skill the players come with certain skills and abilities and uh, it's a case of fitting them in the team and in a way that suits everyone yeah. and Archie's just a lot of top level world class players have learned in the back streets you know they've just they've just had a lot of freedom and time to themselves to, to practice when there were not many roads on the cars on the road for example and down the local park 
But I think when we come out of the coaching um, education courses, you think you have to show the players how much you know and, and teach everyone new things all the time. In actual fact, you don't need to. Archie, you don't need to teach. Just say something like, look, if you can get in behind these centre-backs, we'll play through balls to you quick off the mark. And his finishing was just superb. Five goals in the grand final. And top goal scorer. Um, he and Danny also... Uh, to two totally different people. Danny needed coaching and direction and explanations. Archie didn't. And uh, he they, they combined their complete opposites, one big strong lad and one little skillful fellow. And uh, and they combined so well together. They were a perfect match. And then just provide the service to them and they'll do the job. D I, don't, I know that Daniel wasn't that popular, but I don't understand why. He was so successful. He was. He, yeah. For Australian under-17, under-20 teams as well. Um, and he created that many chances, probably because he didn't put them all away. You know, it's like yeah. you know. You I remember <laughs> you've scored three today, but you could have scored ten. But to me, scoring three goals, and he won top goal scorer one year as well. So yeah. I think he did one top goal scorer of Junior World Cup and that's right. World uh, Cup as well. Golden goal, yeah. uh, top right hand corner, I think, in a, against Brazil. Tremendous player, great player. You're listening to the Football Coaching Life today. Brought to you by Football Coaches Australia and Making Media, the podcast professionals. Today we're talking with one of Australia's best-known coaches, Ernie Merrick. And we're coming towards the end of our time here, but I've got a couple more questions for you. This is a little bit of wisdom one, a little bit sage-like. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think are the most valuable lessons you've learned as a coach? I'd come back to what I said earlier. Coach people, don't coach skills, and understand their side of things um, and don't try and be everything to everyone just uh, provide a little bit support direction um, tell people how good they are <laughs> half, at half time I remember saying to a player who I won't name I said you're just having a fantastic game you know just keep doing it but just get a bit further forward and uh, and he was had the worst game <laughs> afterwards. I went, <laughs> did I say that? In the second half, he was terrific. He was just terrific. People just want positive reinforcement, uh, and uh, criticism is not a good thing. Yeah. And uh, although people think because you put this word in front of it as constructive criticism, it's not. So be very positive, and uh, make everyone's got skills and abilities, and it's not textbook stuff um, but you can usually collectively fit them together in a team if they've got a bit of go about them you know so I, I think one of the things I can remember is that, that you were really good at not trying to tell a team or players too much in one go and you were very very good at getting video evidence so when you sat down with players or teams you could sit down and show them the things that they were doing well or the things that you you know, together you want to help them to work on. Did, how, how did how did that your analysis of that was that a skill you learned through from the AIS? The VIS I def definitely learned a lot of uh, providing feedback and visual feedback more than verbal feedback is very important. And uh, and then of course, as I said, I showed too many videos and. Archie was complaining about not enough popcorn, <laughs> but uh, it just just uh, the the last sort uh, at Newcastle. I was just showing the boys a little bit on through ball in behind quickly before a team has got a chance to get settled 
and get organised and structured up defensively. And uh, and I, 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 one of the the people I was showing was Coutinho. Coutinho, usually you you receive the ball, you look up or you 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 at our level you look up and think what am I going to do with it, and then you put your head down and you play that pass. Coutinho knows what he's going to do before he receives the ball, as do all of those world-class players. And uh, he, I showed the boys, I said to the boys, right, tell me when he looks up. And after it, the boys going, we, we never saw him look up. I said, that's because he knew where it was going before he received it. And the person receiving it on the other end, the striker, he was off, he knew as well. So it's, it's, it's just putting them in that situation, making them aware of it visually putting them in that situation at training over and over again rather than saying you when you're here hit this pass if he does this do this and every permutation is too complicated yes you get in behind you play the pass if it's on and uh, and make good decisions and that's what strategy is all about decision making so I think uh, I picked up a lot of that at the BIS about providing good feedback and we carried it on to the victory because we brought staff from there, yeah. Anita Pedrana in sports science and Aaron Healy, assistant coach. Um, and we were using halftime videos to explain areas that we could improve on and not, we, I never used halftime to talk about a goal we'd conceded, that's been and gone and done. It's, you know, what can we do a little bit better? And it's always about getting in behind the opposition yeah. and getting in behind early. Three things. Yep. <laughs> Keep it simple. Three things. So what does success look like for you? I don't think you ever sit back and say, that's it, I'm successful. I think you do. I think it's uh, it's uh, every week's a new game, a new grind, and you could win five. And I remember that year we won 6-0, um, the last game before the finals. Uh, we lost, we'd won the Premiership early and we lost, we went up to Newcastle. Uh, for some reason, the FFA decided to give us a Premier's plate in Newcastle to away fans. I'd taken a few less players with me because we were in the finals already and I didn't want injuries or red cards. Kevin Musket was doing his best to get a yellow and red card. He got a yellow one and nearly got sent off. But everything went wrong that could go wrong. And we lost 4-0. And... Uh, if I was in the old soccer world, I probably would have been sacked then and there. But uh, that, that final kick up the backside worked for us because we put out a, a better team in the first. In those days, the top two played home and away. So we played Adelaide home and away and uh, we're fortunate enough to go through to the grand final at home and uh, it was just all set up for that. But if you actually look back, we didn't score. In the lead up to the grand final where we won 6-0, we didn't actually have a good run, but we were still doing all the right things, and it came together when it needed to. Certainly did. Okay, we're almost there. One final question for you. You can't answer this with check the VARs working, okay? <laughs> We've done that before. One piece of wisdom for coaches. Um, I think know your, your game style and, uh, and stick to it and make sure it's a very aggressive positive one and don't ever um, give too much respect to the opposition <laughs> because I've seen that you know you, if the coach I was actually lucky enough to be involved in the pre-match talk of a top level Premier League coach and uh, he was it was 
showing the videos the day before the game and talking about the strategy. And uh, all he did was rave about the opposition, which was Spurs. And uh, if I had been playing for his team, I'd have been scared. I was scared of Spurs. <laughs> so I, I think when you're on the field, it's 11 against 11. And uh, don't be respectful before or after games, but be totally disrespectful during the game. Not in a verbal, behavioural point, point of view. It's about well, knowing you're better than the opposition. So any team can beat any other team on a given day if you've got 11 players that are up for it and they'll be up for it more if you're very positive and aggressive and on the front foot and that's been my major sort of mantra in all my coaching days. Is that, uh, it certainly has, I think you're known for, for being a, a very attacking coach. Um, amazing over the journey that that can be criticised as well. Oh, you cop criticism because everyone's got an opinion and uh, I just don't listen to it. I don't read the papers and that sort of thing very often unless there's someone someone specifically is going to... I mean, talk about criticism. Uh, that 2006-2007 championship year, we won the f first seven games. And uh, there was a particular journalist, I'm thinking, he can't criticise that now. What is he going to say now? <laughs> sure enough, he, it, it was in the newspapers. Well, that's it. They're in trouble now because they've peaked. Victory have peaked too early. So it's like it's downhill from here on. And of course, I lost the eighth game. <laughs> the first game that Fred played a full game, we lost. And that was it. Doom and gloom again. And the, and the naysayers and the boos come out. But we went on hardly lost another game until Newcastle and then went on to the final. So you can't win every week. There's always going to be criticism. You, you, it comes back to resilience and determination to keep playing the style of football and not change it at the last minute because things go wrong. I think that's a great place to finish it. Thanks, Ernie Merrick. You've been listening to The Football Coaching Life, brought to you by Football Coaches Australia and Making Media, the podcast professionals. If you have enjoyed today's podcast and want to learn more about Football Coaches Australia or want to become a member, please visit footballcoachesoz.org.au. Have a great day.